0: Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm
1: Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. We're excited to welcome Dr. Manisha Jitani today. But first, we'd like to check in on current hot topics in health and healthcare. And honestly, Harlan, there's a lot that we could cover. So I'm, I'm excited to hear what, what has you uh, interested today.
0: Well, there's a lot that did catch my attention this week, but there's one thing that's kind of Still puzzling me. I wanted to share with you and see what you thought about. It. I mean, I don't know if you've been tracking this issue about these retracted papers from Dana Farber Cancer Center. It's uh
1: it's yeah, o- only because it, because of you, I got interested in this topic. But um, it, it I really have a lot of questions for you. I could probably interview you for twenty minutes
0: on this. Well, I don't, I don't know if I I quite have the answers because it still seems a little bit opaque. So so for people who are listening, of course, Dana Farber Cancer Institute is is. Arguably, one of the leading cancer centers in the country. I mean, there's a handful of them, you know, that really t- stand out, and Dana Farber's one of them. And uh, but they've made recent news, by the way, because they're integrated in with they're separate, but they're integrated in with Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And this last year, they announced that actually they're leaving the Brigham. They're going to work with Beth Israel across the street, and they're going to build a big. Cancer hospital and lots of people in Massachusetts were kind of just saying, "Do we really need a new cancer hospital?" And how's this going to fit? It sounded like the big business of, of cancer was sort of uh, driving some of these decisions, and and so they were, you know, in the news around that this year. But but more recently, they were in the news because there's this British biologist and, and blogger. Actually, the guy seems to be unemployed right now, but spends a lot of his time scouring the research literature. He's a PhD. Seems like a really bright bright guy. And uh, looking for, for problems in published studies, and you know he, he's been it seems very successful in identifying lots of studies that that have had these problems. And there's a, a website PubPeer that is a place where people talk about problematic studies. But but what he did was he he came upon a series of studies that were written by leaders at the Dana Farber Cancer Institute, and then he blogged about it. And I, I don't know if you've seen this blog. How it's a little snarky. He's, he's sort. This is his style, you know. Yeah. He, he's sort of mocking these these highfalutin leaders and so forth. But he's also, you know, embeds in this blog, you know, a lot of evidence of, that he's found of problems. And uh, you know, this is this is kind of a big deal, you know. This guy uh, Sholto David, you know, he flagged almost sixty papers published between nineteen ninety seven and. In 2017, that contained image manipulation and other errors in the, in this sort of this blog post. But but many of these papers were from Dana Farber's chief executive officer, Lori Glimcher, who's who's one of the most renowned researchers in the world, and but also the chief operating officer, who's also an MD and a researcher on topics including multimyeloma and immune cells. And you know he goes through this and he shows figures from these tables where it's clear that that what they've done is sort of cut and pasted or or copied, more copied and pasted. So there are images that are appearing in more than one place that, that really are representing image manipulation. Here's the bottom line that really got me going on this was, you think, well, like, yeah, people take shots all the time around this stuff. But Dana Farber is moving to retract at least six of these research papers and correct 31 others of them. Right because of this allegations of manipulation so it, essentially agreeing with him that there's stuff that needs to be addressed in these papers and I, i'm just trying to figure this out like how in the heck so, so is this I a mean, this isn't a paper mill it could be like a place that you don't think of as being a major science issue, but Dana Farber's different.
1: So let me let me just a couple of quick questions that came to me because you, you highlighted this. So I spent a little time reading the Stat article. I think it's Stat and and we'll put it in Stat, the Stat, New York Times, Harvard yeah. Crimson. I mean really we'll, we'll put the links for that because part of what makes this interesting is this guy. This guy is snorky, he's probably obnoxious. There's a lot of things to say about him. But what struck me is he's in this very narrow area of justice image manipulation. Apparently there are other people that are just as effective in the data area and the methodology area and a lot of things where people are catching either errors or frank fraud. And what I'm curious about is all of these people seem to be doing this for free, maybe for some notoriety, maybe for fame, whatever you want to call it, they're doing it for free. The journals don't have the capacity to be able to do this type of work. Is there some role for either government or for -for not-for-profits to be able to play a more active role in doing this so that it's not built around snark or fame, but built around auditing of our science?
0: Well, this is definitely crowdsourcing. You know, I think uh, somebody called it like a bunch of scientific sleuths who are sitting around and looking at this thing, this guy himself, he's 32 years old, he's a young guy. He says, you know, in that stat article, he goes, look, I'm not a, a I'm not a successful scientist, but I'm able to look and and see and find these things. But, you know, you're looking to the policing of it. Yeah. Howie, this is the CEO of
1: Dana Farber. I know, but that's all the more reason why, like, because once you get to a certain level,
0: people accept that what you do is perfect and maybe we need auditing. Anyway, that story's going to continue to go. So Howie, we should probably get to our guest. Let me hand it to you and, and uh, let's get going. Dr. Manisha Jitani is a professor of
1: infectious diseases at the Yale School of Medicine. And since 2021 serves as the commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Public Health. Prior to this, Dr. Jatani directed the Infectious Diseases Fellowship Program at Yale for almost 10 years while also serving as Associate Program Director for Career Development in the Internal Medicine Residency Program. Her work ranges from analyzing infectious diseases in elderly populations to researching antibiotics and palliative care. Dr. Jitani was a reasoned and expert voice for local and national communities as we were confronted with a truly novel coronavirus in 2020 and remains a thoughtful voice and trusted advisor through her current public service. Dr. Jitani received her undergraduate degree from the University of Pennsylvania before going on to obtain her MD at Cornell, where she also completed her internal medicine residency prior to a fellowship at Yale. So first, I wanna welcome you. It's always a pleasure to have somebody who's in your position, but even more so that you've retained your faculty title at Yale, so you're still a colleague of ours. And I wanna start off with that because You know, you you came up through the internal medicine ranks the way Harlan did, and Harlan went into cardiology. I want to know, when did you first think that infectious diseases was what drew you into medicine?
2: So first, thank you so much for that really kind introduction, and it's a pleasure to be here with both of you. During residency, I remember I was an assistant chief resident at Cornell during my third year of residency, and I had this case that I was presenting to residents about a young woman who had typhoid fever, salmonella typhi, and she hadn't traveled anywhere. And it turned out that in reporting that case to the New York City Health Department, they did their investigation and identified a fast food restaurant in Queens where Uh a healthcare worker had been chronically colonized with salmonella typhi, and that went on to three different people in the city of New York being infected and getting typhoid fever without any travel whatsoever. And I was just so jazzed by that epidemiologic investigation about the clinical presentation. And that's what drew me into infectious diseases. And that's when I said to myself, you know, I think I know what I'm going to apply for going forward. This case of Salmonella typhi really made me interested in infectious diseases. But interestingly, all these years later, it's actually the public health aspect of it that was also so interesting to me. It was the detective work both on the identification of the disease that the individual patient was faced with, but also a case that highlighted how the health department really was instrumental in identifying a root cause to a situation that infected multiple people in the community.
0: I'm gonna go in a whole different direction. I just wanted to start with a little bit of a whimsical thing here. So what do you think about cranberries?
2: <laughs> so Harlan, you know, I have devoted practically 10 or 15 years of my life to cranberries. Uh, I eat them in my oatmeal every day. Okay, I, I'm, yeah, okay. I, I really enjoy cranberries overall but do I think that they prevent urinary tract infections? I would say that the answer and the body of evidence would suggest no. Aww. So <laughs> I, That does not mean that I suggest not eating them or not drinking cranberry juice, but do it because you like it and not because you necessarily think it's gonna prevent a UTI. I also do think though that cranberry juice may make people feel better. It may have an anesthetic effect when you do have a UTI. So that doesn't mean don't drink it if it makes you feel better.
0: There are lots of, I almost call them wives' tales, beliefs, you know. And by the way, when you get to things like like, things we consume, uh, foods and juices, you know, a lot of promotion around that kind of stuff because it's not as strongly regulated. As drugs and devices. So as you walk down the grocery store, you can see, I saw one day a cereal said, boost your immune system with this cereal. You know, there can be a lot of claims, but I, I thought one of the cool things was that, you know, you took this on and actually, you know, employed rigorous research methods to answer some of this. And that's why when you said, you know, I've spent years as people are listening to what, want to make sure they know that, that this is what we need, right? I mean, even on the most basic things, you say, well, cranberries. Yeah, yeah, but Lots of people believing it. People are wondering about it. It's an issue. By the way, if it is effective, it's fantastic. Exactly. If it's not, let's just dispel it. But what I really thought was great, and, and maybe I can just ask you, like, what drew you to to actually begin those studies?
2: So when I was an infectious disease fellow at Yale, I would go around the hospital, and most of the patients we took care of were older individuals. And as I was thinking about where I was going to focus my research efforts, I decided to focus on the topic of infection prevention in older adults, broadly speaking. And my primary mentor, Dr. Vinnie Coilarello, was working on pneumonia prevention in older adults. And the other big infection in older adults is urinary tract infections. And so I started looking at ways that we could diagnose and prevent UTIs in older women better. And that took me down that road of what are the different ways that we can do that. And I came upon cranberry in that way. I was working with another colleague who was in the similar area. And actually there's been research done previously on cranberry juice, going back to a JAMA paper in 1994 by Jerry Avorn from the Harvard system. And I was curious that, you know, older people often cannot drink enough. Their thirst drive is down. They just don't have the drive to drink. So could cranberry capsules, which as you mentioned, are marketed all over the place and there are different concentrations of what the active compound, proanthocyanidin pack for short, is in all these different compounds. So as you said, I tried to approach this in a rigorous fashion. I found a capsule that had the highest pack content. I did a dosing study to identify a feasible dose. These were years of research to do this, to ultimately do an NIH R01 funded clinical trial looking at two cranberry capsules for prevention of asymptomatic bacteria, so bacteria in the urine of older women. And it did not show that we reduced that. Now, what I can say is a lot of older people are living on fixed incomes. They are supported by insurance, by Medicare, many people do not have a lot of ancillary income to spend on over-the-counter, unregulated products. That's part of the reason I decided to do this work, was that when you're looking at a population that is already challenged in that way, for them to spend funds on something that may or may not work, I really wanted to try to get to the bottom of that answer. And that's really what took me down that road. And you know, when I gave grand rounds at Yale after I published this paper, I, cha- I I titled the grand rounds presentation "Debunking a Myth," which is very difficult to do, as you clearly articulated. And so I get asked every year at Thanksgiving to comment on what I think about cranberries, but what I can say is. I do not feel that the evidence supports using cranberry capsules for that purpose. I do clinically feel that hydration is a critical component, hydration in and of itself. And so does cranberry juice help sometimes because you're hydrating yourself? Maybe because you're anesthetizing yourself and making your symptoms less? I think it very well could for those reasons.
0: I'm just thinking about like, you know, you're named commissioner of public health in Connecticut. You know it's a it's a big platform. What do you do on that first day? Like, what did you set certain priorities? I mean, you know, you know, you're only going to be there for a certain period of time because that's how these kind of positions work. So you, you know, you're 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 walking in. Of course, there's crises here and there's issues here. I mean, you, that take your attention. But as you thought about it and said, you know, what what's the kind of thing I want to have accomplished by the time? I'm done. You know, did you set a a one or two or three priorities that you said these are the areas that I really want to make an impact in while I'm in this position? I'm just just curious how you were thinking about that.
2: It's a great question, and I absolutely did just that. But Harlan, your question is exactly what was at the heart of what I thought of when I came into this job. I will say, the day I came into this job, we had all kinds of vaccine mandates happening in the state, and I was asked to come into this decision and that decision. So, it was often running right away. And so, as you said, I had to really think in the gaps because I walked right into a COVID crisis with the Omicron wave taking off at about the 90th to 100th day that I was in the job. But in between that, I did come up with a few priorities. So, number one, I would say is emerging infectious diseases. So, we had, I came into COVID, but right after that was Mpox. Right after that was polio in New York State. Right after that was Ebola. We didn't have any cases in the United States, but there's a lot that has to go on in terms of preparedness, being able to test for the Sudan variant at our lab. So, emerging infectious diseases broadly. And I think there's going to be more of that because the second priority of climate and health, with all the changes that are happening in climate, what we're going to see in the United States, malaria in Maryland, malaria in Florida and Texas. What's next for us in Connecticut? We have to be prepared. So, emerging infectious diseases, climate and health, revitalizing public health more broadly. That applies to mental health, maternal health, infant mortality, STDs. The list goes on and on. Cancer prevention, cardiovascular disease. These are all the preventative things that kind of fell by the wayside during COVID that we're trying to make sure all these programs. Are in person and actually happening in the way to help get them back under control. Reimagining long term care in the nursing home industry. We had a crisis in COVID. What is healthcare going to look like for an aging population? What does that look like in Connecticut? Also, an important topic. We got an infusion of funding around water. The Department of Public Health provides safe drinking water to people in the state of Connecticut. Water that comes into the body is regulated by this department. And with the bipartisan infrastructure law under President Biden, we had a huge infusion in infrastructure for drinking water. Making sure that is being distributed fairly, equitably, and in areas that need it most. That also includes $30 million of American Rescue Plan Act funds, that were put towards getting lead out of homes. So this sort of broad area of environmental health was another area that's a big push in terms of what we're looking at. And then overlying all of that is health equity. Because quite frankly, if we don't do this as an, in an equitable way that really impacts the citizens in our state, as you mentioned, Howie, that you know social determinants of health generally are high in Connecticut. But our disparities are so vast. The, the differences between what's going on in Bridgeport and Hartford and Waterbury in our state, to name just a few, and other areas is so vast that health equity has to be at the center of all of that.
1: I wanna ask, you've been involved in medical education for your entire career, and it was inspiring to hear you talk about what got you into infectious disease. And it reminds me that most of our medical students do not have direct experience with our public health agencies. And I wonder if there are lessons to be learned about how do we train people like you who are gonna go into uh, medicine, but also public health and not necessarily have to go through the infectious disease pathway.
2: So the first thing is I was just at Yale a couple of weeks ago giving a talk on just this topic to first year medical students. So maybe that helps open their eyes to what the public health department does. And I think for them to understand that we do surveillance of so many diseases, we then try to risk communicate. 50% of what I think the health department does is trying to communicate with the public on what's going on and what's important so that you can ultimately change your behavior, disease modify. I often talk about the three E's for our department of public health. The first is to educate the second is to engage the public, and the third is to evolve their behavior. And so those three key principles, if medical students can learn that and remember how the health department interfaces with the work they may do as clinicians in the long run, will be better off.
1: Great.
0: I want to just return quickly to the disparities issue, because it's also an area of intense interest of mine. I know Howie's too. The one of the things that's interesting is Connecticut's a lower mortality state than, than most of the others. I mean, we we really are, I think, what, among the top five or so. You know, we're in the top 10 percent of all the states with regard to our life expectancy and in health measures. But what's disturbing across the nation is no matter where you sit on, on this spectrum of performance around health, there's still this delta. There's still this difference between how... For example, white people do and black people do. You know this difference in mortality rates, this excess mortality. I've been calling it excess mortality among among black Americans compared to white Americans, because of course this is all about social context and social determinants and structural racism, and, and and it's not about their intrinsic biology. It's not how they were born. And you know, I've just been trying to think hard. You know, what can we do as a state to actually break this pattern? You know, up until now, we, we haven't been able to make that progress. Yale is a great institution, hasn't been able to. It's Connecticut is a great state, hasn't been able to do that. Do you have any thoughts about what we need to do to accomplish that?
2: Structural racism didn't happen in a day, and it's not going to be undone in a day. I think that's something I've had to accept. That doesn't mean that it doesn't stop me from trying to do all the things we're all trying to do. Because I think there's so many barriers to trying to accomplish what you're talking about. Right out of the gate, a young child born into a situation which may have the cards stacked against them makes it challenging right from the start. So we really have to do this over the entire life spectrum. One example I can give you is we've been entrusted with funds to reduce community gun violence. And we issued our first set of eight grants to community-based organizations that are specifically targeting the public health approach to firearm injury prevention. And that is on the ground in communities. So what are the types of groups that are doing this? We have groups that are working with students in New Haven, making them feel good about themselves, feel connected with each other, doing activities with each other to show a pathway that maybe doesn't lead down a place of self-worth being less, of engaging in violence, potentially getting into drugs and going in a direction that takes us off that path. We have groups that are helping young mothers and young fathers stay in that trajectory. We have groups that are taking young kids in Hartford to a farm every week. Again, taking care of somebody else, taking care of something else. These are strategies that we have to start young and we have to be persistent, preventing recidivism. You know, if somebody's coming out of the justice system, how do we help them get back on their feet? And we have to keep being persistent across the life spectrum, starting from birth all the way to nursing home care. And if we keep doing that, we will slowly move the dial. It's not going to change overnight, but all the programs that we work on are one step in that direction. And I'm hopeful that in my time that I'm in this job, we will move the needle at least a little bit.
1: I'm a lot more hopeful and a lot more optimistic because you're in that job. So thank you very much for joining us uh, on the Health and Veritas podcast. And we
0: look forward to having you back.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, that was a terrific interview. We're so Lucky to have had the commissioner on today, and uh, I'm so glad that you were able to book her. But let's get to your uh, part of this uh, podcast, Howie. What's on your mind this week? Yeah, so
1: I wanted to end with some good news for our listeners and for you, Harlan. Uh, and I don't often talk about global health occasionally, but really not often enough. I mostly deal with domestic policy, but these are really important. They give me hope, optimism. Uh, and we have uh, too little of that. So first up, the guinea worm. In 1986, there were 3.5 million reported infections in individuals resulting in disability and just plain pain. I mean, this is a debilitating infection. What, what,
0: what is the guinea worm? So the worm?
1: guinea worm, uh, if you go really far back to the Bible, it's the serpents we talk about when we talk about the 10 plagues. It's a nematode. It. We could talk about the whole life cycle, but it'll take a lot of time. But literally, a worm gets inside a human being and eventually exits through their skin. It's horrible. Oh. We will put a link on our page for people to look at it if they want to, but I would caution them not to but it's a serious illness. and It's too, it's too gross for them to it, look at. It really might be, but we're going to leave a link for them if they want to. It's on the second page of the link. Through the efforts of our 39th president and his Carter Center, there were only 13 cases last year for the second year in a row, down from 3.5 million down to 13, just amazing this has been an incredible effort on the part of local and global public health officials that comes from getting better access to cleaner, which means filtered water, eradicating the disease from host animals and getting earlier treatment for the affected patients. The Carter Center itself invested over $500 million in this effort and many others as well. It's not the only neglected disease to be tackled by the Carter Center, but it's the only one that could result in true eradication of this parasite from the earth. Smallpox is the only other infectious human disease to have seemingly been eradicated. But there's still more good news because this time out of Cape or Cabo Verde, however you say it, uh, an island nation off the coast of West Africa, an archipelago. In this case, the World Health Organization has certified that they are just the third African nation and the first sub-Saharan nation in 50 years to be certified as malaria-free after three consecutive years of no malaria cases. Much like the case of Guinea worm, this effort is multidisciplinary, multi-attack, and it comes from huge local and global efforts. Now, 580,000 people died of malaria in Africa in 2022. So this is a major cause of morbidity and mortality. And there is a lot more work to be done in the world to eradicate disease. But to me, it's exciting to celebrate the wins as we're in the beginning of a new year.
0: I can't tell you how much I appreciate hearing good news, because we also always are talking about the problems around the corner or the problems we're facing. And, of course, the commissioner was identifying even malaria in the United States. And, and so right. what you're saying is we actually can come together, make progress, and and improve global health.
1: That's my belief.
0: So we just got to spark that a little bit more, right? So,
1: yeah, so I hope so. I, I mean, I really, I, it gives, it shows me the power of public health, of public health schools, of public health institutions. We just have to work together. We have to or in the correct direction and together.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, you're talking a lot about infectious diseases, but the non-communicable diseases like heart disease and cancer, sure. you know, I think those are on the horizon too. We've and and as people live longer better.
1: lives in those countries, they become much more important.
0: So let's try to look for those same kind of successes. So yeah, great. Thanks for sharing that. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your
1: feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on threads. I'm at
0: H-A-R-L-A-N-K-R-U-M. That's Harlan
1: Krumholtz. And I'm at T-H-E, the number four, M-A-N on threads, or you can still look for me at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E on Twitter. You can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. Aside from Twitter and our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email or in any other format you want so that we can talk more about our innovative programs or check our website at som.yale.edu slash EMBA.
0: Finally, if you have a view on the podcast, please rate and review us on your podcast app. We always read and talk about these reviews. For instance, recently, uh, one person wrote, uh, super informative and well done. That was good. But they said, my only wish is to hear less of the Yale-centric accolades as it sounds too clicky. Howie, should we cut down on this? I, look, I think I, I will say
1: this. We have to be fair uh, we do this as a labor of love. You and I have both spent our, our essentially our entire academic careers at Yale. We love Yale, but we are so proud of everybody as part of the public health community, the healthcare community, and it's nice to get some feedback. I, I'm personally trying to talk a little less about Yale. We'll have to get more feedback to find out if we're succeeding.
0: Yeah, I mean, maybe a little less inside baseball because every once in a while you and you and I default to something about Yale that's yes. a little in, insider stuff. So yeah, let's try to be sensitive to that. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management and the Yale School of Public Health. Thanks to our researchers, Ines Gil and Sophia Stomp, and to our producer, Miranda Shea, for extraordinary people helping us every single episode. So Thank
1: appreciate you. everything that they do for us.
0: Yeah, talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks
1: very much, Holm. Talk to you soon.